Welcome to the Boston Society of the New Jerusalem's Church on the Hill podcast. If you like it, consider joining us at 140 Bowden Street in Boston for more, or visit us on the web at churchonthehillboston.org. Good morning. Today's reading is from Mark, Book 16, verses 1 to 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go out and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there in the place they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Who will roll the stone away for us? I'm not saying that as a question we're asking ourselves, like we're going to the tomb. I'm saying that is the statement that the two Marys had. As we read this passage about the Lord's resurrection, these two Marys had picked up some spices and were wondering, they were wondering how on earth they are going to move that stone. I don't know about you all. Um, This passage boggles my mind. How often do you leave to go to the store when you know it's closed? How often do you make the choice to do something knowing that the place you are going, your endeavors will be futile? These two women knew that the tomb was sealed. They had no idea who was going to be there. They they hoped. They hoped that somebody would be there to open the tomb for them. But I want to take us, why did they go in the first place? They went in the first place because they were going to spice the body. Now, I don't know how many of you know much about the traditions of that day. But still to this day, within Jewish tradition, you do not embalm the body. 
the idea of creating artificial eternal life by pumping the body full of chemicals existed even back then. We do it in the United States with open caskets all the time. We put all sorts of new chemicals in to keep the body fresh and preserve them. This was not the belief that these two women had. This was not the belief that Jesus had. You picked up spices so you could hide the stench of a decaying body. They were not even going because they expected to see Jesus alive. They were going to a place after the Sabbath. They could not work on the Sabbath, so they waited to the first opportunity that they could go. Going to a place that was probably closed to simply pay their respect by saying, it would be nice if the body of our teacher didn't stink. This question is actually raised in the New Testament a little bit earlier with the raising of Lazarus, when Jesus got there so late and said, well, I want to go see him, and they go, don't go in there. His body's already started to smell. This concept of three days and the body not smelling good This was common to them. This was something you did to anoint a body out of respect for the body, not because you thought that that was going to do anything. So these two women got there, had no idea whether or not it was going to be open. They had a hope. They wanted to pay respect and honor to Jesus. They didn't know who was going to help them. And yet, when they got there, the tomb was opened. The first thoughts that go through our head is, oh my gosh, who stole the body? Did a soldier do this? Were they desecrated by the Roman government? This sort of thing, believe it or not, grave robbing of people who were inspiring is not uncommon. This is one of the reasons why cemeteries even up to the 1950s, had a lookout tower usually in the center of them to look out for grave robbers because people knew that people want to bury their loved ones with riches. They want to bury their loved ones with meaningful tokens. They want to pay honor and respect to them. And yes, even sometimes people who are going after those treasures just want to steal a skull. Steal the remains so that you can have a peace to honor and worship. I don't know how many of you know this, because this sounds like a horrible thing, right? Doesn't it sound like a horrible thing? There is actually even a Christian tradition about this, where it's sanctified by the church. We have something that we like to call, we rename it, right? We don't call them remains. We rename them. Anyone know what we rename them? relics, fragments of bone, tears, clothing, all sorts of things. We collect them. In fact, any, usually a church, um, specifically within the Roman Catholic tradition, if it says this is Saint, the Church of St. Kevin, I, you know. <laughs> what that means is in the center of that altar, 
in that church. They've bored out a hole. They've taken part of the altar material out, and they've put a relic in there. Now, the church understands that to be a burial, too. So they're not collecting it and putting it in their pocket and walking around town, but they're burying it that way. And then they reseal the altar. This was a very common practice. This is not about being bad people or whatnot. This is us loving the things that we see in the past. I'm a hypocrite because I'm going to tell you that we can't do that. At, I, I'm standing at a lectern right now that I carried up here from the back of the church a while ago that says, presented by the Thimble Club, October 5th, 1924. So this lectern replaced the lectern that was in the building that was torn down in the 1960s. And I'm standing here thinking to myself, how great it is to have this nice old thing that I can preach from. Tradition isn't bad. The question I have is sometimes, well, let's say someone wants to have communion or someone wants to be close to God and your religious code prevents you from doing it. There have been times, believe it or not, where people have said, this is, oh, what do we have here? New International Version of the Bible. My Bible collection has 35 some different Bibles, and there are people who say there is only one version of the Bible. You go and you have people who read it, this word says this, therefore this is the truth. The problem is when you do comparative searches of different Bibles, you may actually find Bibles that have different words in them. The best one being the comic version of the New Living Translation. None of the words are the same. Not many of us do what our Jewish and our Muslim brothers and sisters do. Not many of us, in order to be considered a disciple, actually learn the original language of our scripture. So what we have then is we create these things that block us, that get in our way. We create relics. Swedenborg talks to us today a little bit about prudence. Prudence, some people might say it's about being careful. Like we use prudence a lot in financial situations. But prudence also has something to do about rationality and judgment. There are many ways we can define prudence, but I'm going to use acting wisely, judiciously, in circumspection and thoughtfulness. We are called to actually be people who think about what we do. If we did not think about what we do, what would we be? Anyone know? We would be meat robots, right? God has actually created us in a way that we are supposed to think about what we do. We have a sense of identity where we actually view ourselves as being separate from God. And I would argue that anything in the created world 
is part of God. That's not to say that I'm God. I'm not an egotist like that. But I have a sense that I'm separate from God when in actuality all things exist from God. But that sense of self makes me need to have prudence. That prudence is a double-edged sword. If we do it well, we can actually draw ourselves closer to God. If we do it poorly, we put relics and things of this world in between us and God. We can actually live a life of fear of there's a big rock in the way. How do we get to be close to our Lord, closer to our purpose, closer to our life? The symbolism of a rock. Rocks are used in many ways in the scriptures. I'm going to pick two. Because I want to show you a rock isn't just a rock. In scripture, we are told about Peter being a rock, meaning the foundation. Rock as a stone that we build off of that makes us strong and resilient. And there's also the stone that is hurled through the air to kill people. A stone as a weapon of violence. There was a movie some years back. I really don't remember it, but at one point it was, it was about a, a group of people who went off to a Christian summer camp, and this one girl got really upset, and she decided to act out in her anger by throwing the Bible at the other person. The director did that as a metaphor, meaning when we view our scripture in a relic when we view our scripture in a certain way, we can actually physically use our Bible to hurt other people. Have any of you ever heard of that? Of people saying, the Bible says this, so you are wrong? The Bible says this, so what you choose to do and how you are living isn't necessarily right? They use the Bible without compassion and love to dictate their desires. This is a difficult thing because when we interact with the world and in a religious way, we have several things going on that we don't always acknowledge. Some Christian groups like to say, by Scripture alone, meaning everything has to be understood by Scripture, but that's not how it actually happens. Even the phrase, by Scripture alone, is part of tradition. It's part of an unspoken rule. We have all sorts of things that go on. We have scripture, we have our tradition, and we have our experience. I'm going to use, I'm going to talk about love a little bit because we hear love our neighbor all the time, right? That's what the Bible says love our neighbor. That's what Jesus' message was, wasn't it? Well, if you look, guess what? If you look in Scripture before the coming of Christ, love your neighbor is also present throughout it. If you look in lots of traditions, you have love your neighbor or similar things, because there's a something that's, that shifts in interpretation. Who is your neighbor? We can all agree what love is, right? Love is, I want the best for this other person. 
I want to support them, nurture them, I care about them as much as myself, or at least I care about them close to as much as I care about myself. What we do is we change our notion of what the neighbor is. We have done this historically. Anyone realize, and I probably use this example more than I should, but does anyone know what happened right after the Israelites were given the commandment as we translate it in our Bible, thou shalt not kill often? God told them to go and wipe out everybody in the Holy Land. The, the closest original translation is thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not murder is a legal term. Murder is a legal definition. And what that means is you cannot kill someone who you consider part of your legal code for a specific purpose. That is not just. When the law says it's okay to kill someone, it is not viewed as murder. Because murder is a crime, not an action. Does that make sense? So if we can define what neighbor means, let's say we can say that people who live in Hopkinton, Massachusetts are only three-fifths a person. Well, our country has labeled certain people as only three-fifths a person in their life. You know, We can redefine who a neighbor is. We can say, oh, if you're not from our tribe, if you're not from our clan, if you don't look like me, if you don't believe like me, if you do not have something that I want to acknowledge as being valuable, well, then you're not my neighbor. So I can hurt you. Or what I can do is I can, I can parse this out by saying, I can love you, but I cannot necessarily Love the things that you're doing that are essential to who you are. We can use scripture as a weapon. The Lord radically redefines this. So if we look at our scripture in a, in a more symbolic way as the stone that blocks the tomb, are these messages that we have been given that aren't alive. They're actually dead. And they can be scripture that we misinterpret. And that scripture can cease to be relevant and we can walk in and we can say, where's God? And what does God say? I'm already ahead of you. God is not where we are. I don't mean to say that God is not in this church. I don't mean to say that God is not in your heart. What I mean is, God wants us to be more loving and better people. No matter who we are. Even Reverend Leach. Already about as loving as you can get. God wants us to be loving, more loving people. God is always one step ahead of us of radically redefining what it means to love. The stone. The stone is that place where we are stuck in our fears of this world. The stone is that place where we are stuck, where there's that little part of us that even though we don't know why we're doing something that doesn't really seem like it's something we historically would have done, 
we're doing it anyway. So we are Mary and Martha, or Mary and Mary in this one, sorry. We are Mary and Mary, and we are taking the steps to go somewhere to do something without any idea of whether or not we'll actually be able to accomplish it. The stone is blocking it, yet we feel a desire to go and pay honor and love to something we can't get to. Does that make sense? Being stuck in a place where, for some reason, we feel out of love and respect and goodness at no personal benefit to ourselves, we are called to act in a certain way, and yet there's something that is blocking us. If we follow that love that calls us into activity, the Holy Spirit will remove the stone. If we listen to that voice inside of us that doesn't say, ah, oh, forget tradition. I mean, if it was just forget tradition, the Marys could have just gone to Galilee and tripped and said, oh, there's Jesus right there, but that's not what happened. They followed tradition. They did that traditional thing. So I'm not saying tradition's bad, but there's an intersection of our experience where we follow what we know is right, where we also listen to that new voice that pushes us forward. Because God is not where we expect to find him or her. God is ahead of us in Galilee. God has gone on to Galilee. You have your choice. Do you choose to carry that message that God is in the future in a new place doing a different ministry? Do you go and tell the disciples, and by the disciples I don't mean the people sitting around you, but that's okay, you can tell them too. I mean, does your head and your heart tell the rest of your body to take the next step? Go to the place where you didn't think God was going to be, to do the things that you are called to do, are you willing to carry your goods, your spices, to a place where you're not sure whether or not they're going to be used? And are you willing to hear the Lord tell you where to go and how to use them? That is what it means to live Easter. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Boston Society of the New Jerusalem's Church on the Hill podcast. If you liked what you hear, consider joining us at 140 Bowden Street, Boston, for more. Or visit us on the web at churchonthehillboston.org.